And there's a statement that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1 that I want us to center on and look at, and I want us to think about for a few moments tonight. We'll read the first four verses of this chapter, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Paul opens this epistle by saying, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time you've given, granted unto us. Pray that we would take it as the gift that it is, Father, that we not take it for granted, but that we would open our hearts to the truth of your word. Let it stir us. Let it call us to our place of responsibility and duty that we might, Father, contribute uh, in seeing our church and seeing any Bible-believing church that we may be a part of to uh, be in more ways found under your praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we love you. and We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to look with me at verse number 2 and 3. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. In other words, as he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, We're praying for you. We've got you in our, our hearts and we've got you in our prayers. But then I want you to notice verse 3. He says, We have you in our memories. He says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, and our Father. Paul, when writing to the church at Thessalonica, said, there are some things about your church life that I simply cannot shake. I cannot get away from. Every time I think, Paul is saying, about this church, there are three things that are prominent in my memories. We're getting ready to go into election season. And, uh, and it is, a, it is a season. Amen. Almost like a sport. And uh, going into the election season, gearing up for 2020, I'm like most people. You know, there's a part of me that 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 looks forward to the sheer entertainment value of the weirdness of it all, because that's where we're at in our politics today. Uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but then, too, there's a part of me that kind of goes, <sighs> you know, I, I almost dread it. I, the, I dread the stupidity of it. I dread the, the tension of it. And one of the things I hate and dread, and I think most people are this way, is the pandering talk of politicians. Uh, and you see this all the time. You're seeing it more prevalently today than, than probably ever in history. And one of the things that you'll always hear, you've already heard it sounding in this election season. You heard it in 2016, 2012, 2008. In fact, every, every election I can think of, they all say this is a referendum on who we want to be as a country. And you're hearing people already say that. Now, I believe there's some truth to that. I believe maybe it's truer today than it has ever been because we are more divided politically today than we have ever been, at least probably since the colonial days. There probably have been times that there was at least greater surface division, if not greater ideological division, politically speaking. But they'll, they'll appeal to and invoke that thought. Who do we want to be? What do we want people to remember us as? Uh, you can think back through the generations in our country, and most of them are defined by some characteristic, historically speaking. I think particularly about the greatest generation. You think about World War II and the sort of the courage and sacrifice and selflessness and, and unbridled patriotism of that time. Now, that's not to say everybody was like that. 
It's not to say that, that we, we didn't still live in a sin-fallen world at that time, but when we think back about that generation, that's what we think of. And you'll hear politicians talking about how do we want to be remembered? What kind of America do we want to be? I think in all honesty, that question would maybe be better served to be asked to local churches. What kind of church do we want to be? How do we want our church to be defined? Now, I'm not talking about necessarily just our doctrine. Our doctrine should be defined on the Word of God, of course, but there are a lot of churches that are doctrinally straight but are otherwise a mess. How do we want to be remembered? Paul said, when I think of the church at Thessalonica, there are three things. And by the way, neither of the, none of these have anything to do with their doctrine. It's not to say they were not a doctrinal church. He goes on to uh, fix some things about their, their doctrinal perspective in, in First and Second Thessalonians, but also to commend them for their doctrinal position and staunchness. He talks about when they heard the Word of God, they received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God. And they believed it and they applied it. So he's not disregarding the doctrinal aspect, but I would just remind you that, that there's more, listen, a church that, a church that is nothing beyond its doctrinal statement. And a church ought to and should, and our church does have a doctrinal statement. But we understand there are things that are, if not beyond, at least tangential to the doctrinal statement. A church that is nothing beyond that, meaning the culture of it, meaning the atmosphere of it, meaning the spirit of it, a church that is nothing beyond that is merely, you know, a Bible college. Amen? Right? We ought to be a center of teaching. We ought to be a center of preaching. There's no question. But we have to recognize that there is a church life. Again, I almost, I don't want to say beyond it because it's not beyond it, but but that is around it. And Paul, when he mentions the things that he remembers about this church, it's not the preaching, it's not the doctrinal staunchness or position, but rather he says there are three things that stick in my memory about your church. And I believe that these three things are areas that not by any means to the dismissing or disregarding or disservice of a church's doctrinal position, but in addition to what's said in their doctrinal statement, what's preached from the pulpit, three things that ought to be present in the life of every Bible-believing church if they want to honor the Lord. Look what he says, verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your, and he says three things. First, he says your work of faith. Second, your labor of love. And third, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm not in any way trying to suggest these things are disconnected from doctrine. In fact, doctrine informs all these things. But there are churches that can have a right doctrinal statement, but their work is not a work of faith. There are churches that can have a right doctrinal statement, but their labor is not a labor of love. And there are churches that can have a right doctrinal statement, but their patience is not a patience of hope, or they have no patience of hope. I was talking to a preacher, and you're going to have to give me a little a little grace as we go move through this, because there's a lot of this God's just been putting on my heart. And uh, me and and a preacher were sitting down eating yesterday, and we were talking about culture. And for a long time, we have been raised up in a generation to believe that cultures are what's the word I'm looking for? That cultures uh, have no intrinsic value in and of themselves. Uh, for instance, we've always been told, well, there's just things that are part of another people's culture, this person's culture, that person's culture. Cultures have intrinsic value and we might say a, a, a hierarchy of worth in and of themselves. There are some cultures in the world today that are better than other cultures. 
There are some cultures that allow for liberty, that allow for freedom, that value life, that value property rights, that, that value the individual soul liberty of a person. And then there are cultures in the world today that don't value those things. Well, a church is just like any other entity. It has a culture. And because we as biblicists have so sought to find scriptural footing on everything, and we ought to have scriptural footing on things, don't misunderstand me, but because of that, I think we have dismissed the value of good church culture. There are some things that you might not be able to nail me down on, or I might not be able to nail you down on with chapter and verse, but there's no question that culturally speaking, there are things that are better for the church of the living God than other things. Can I give you a simple example? I probably shouldn't say this. I ain't even wearing a tie tonight. But I think it is culturally good for a person to treat the office of a pastor. I'm talking about pastors to treat the office of a pastor with a holy reverence. I don't think pastors ought to seek to try to, uh, in any way, degrade the office of a pastor and make it seem as though it's a common or a base thing. Now, how that manifests itself in the church Uh, We could probably get mired in a myriad of of cultural distinctions. And there's been a lot of fussing throughout history about those cultural distinctions. But we should not, excuse me, so readily abandon the value of those things uh, as far as culture is concerned. Music is another good example of that. I think music ought to be uh, something that uplifts the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not something that nourishes the flesh. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to enjoy a holy, sacred music. Uh, there's probably a lot of people would say our music we enjoy too much around here. I think we should be able to enjoy it. I don't think God's honored by dead music. Amen? But there is no question, too, that our music should be completely and wholly uh, part and form separate from the music of the world. And you might say, well, preacher, where do you draw all those lines? I found this, that most of the time you know it when you see it. But even beyond that, I don't know that I necessarily have to give you a chapter and verse for all those things. For too long, Christians have tried to choose between what's right and wrong instead of choosing between what's better and what's best. There are some things, some issues, it's not a matter of right and wrong, it's a matter of better and best. And I'm saying that many of these things that Paul talks about with this church, he's not talking about their doctrinal statement. It's not to say that the doctrinal statement is not important, but there are things surrounding that doctrinal statement that relate to the culture of a church that must and should and need to be right. And there are things that should be prevalent and present in church life. And he lists three of them. Can I give them to you very quickly? First, he says, your work of faith. The work of the New Testament church should be a work of faith. If what we are doing does not require faith, then I would suggest that we're not doing enough. I have to fight this as a pastor sometimes, because there are certain things that just uh, give you comfort as a pastor. You've heard Brother Larry talk about it before. He's our treasurer, and uh, Brother Larry has talked about what a blessing it is. You know, when you write a check to pay a church bill, you never have to worry if it's if the money's going to be there. You know it's going to be there. And I don't think that's wrong. I think we ought to glorify God for that. But one of the things we need to caution ourselves against that concerning is that we don't move into a realm where we're operating in fleshly comfort as opposed to faith conviction. We never need to get to the place where we're uncomfortable having to trust God with what we're doing here. What we're doing must be a work of faith. And faith can, faith is not relegated only to the, 
uh, realm of the, of the desperate. It doesn't have to be. But we need to recognize that if what we're doing is not an expression of faith, then what we're doing is, is wholly out of character with what God intended the New Testament church to be doing. I want you to think three thoughts with me tonight or think about them with me. Hopefully I'm, I'm convincing enough that you think them, but I want you to at least think about them with me. First, I want you to consider this. Works should be the manifestation of our faith. In other words, what we do as a New Testament church should be an extension and expression of the faith that we have in the Word of God and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what James said in James chapter number 2. Now, you're familiar with this passage, I know. But I want you to hear what James says about this matter of faith in verse number 14. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. It says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Notice that carefully. Thou hast faith, I have works. You say you have faith. You proclaim to have faith. And James is not necessarily doubting that. But he's saying, What value does that faith have if it's alone? He says, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And of course... The implication is clear. You can't. You simply can't. You can proclaim to have faith, but if there's not works behind it, then there's no proof of it. He says, I will show thee my faith by my works. You know, Paul would write in the book of Hebrews chapter number 11 that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence of things not seen. There is a direct progression between the revelation of God The faith that responds to the revelation of God, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and the works that are then birthed out of that faith. And we need to understand that there are a lot of things that can can motivate works. There are a lot of things that can can instigate us to do things for God. Uh, A lot of times fear of man can do that. A lot of times uh, a desire for position or the the admiration of people can do that. Sometimes just merely a sense of duty can do that. People uh, are raised a certain way. I got a preacher friend put this on Facebook the other day. I thought it was good. He said that cultural Christianity is not the same thing as personal salvation. I'm going to say that again. Cultural Christianity is not the same thing as personal salvation. To be culturally Christian is not synonymous with being personally saved and born again. He went on to say that social conservatism is not synonymous with personal salvation. To be an advocate for conservative principles and ideals, and I'm conservative, I believe in it, but that is not synonymous with personal salvation. Along that same vein, there are a lot of things that can motivate us to do and serve for God. But if faith is not the motivating factor, a direct personal belief that God honors those that come unto Him and those that serve Him, and we do it because not because we want man's applause or, or, or man's appreciation, not because we just feel like that's what we ought to do, or, or because we believe that it contributes to a better culture in our society, but because we know that God sees and pays attention to what we're doing and that He's pleased with how we're living, If that's not the motivation of it, then we've missed it. 
Works is the proper, and I've sort of gotten ahead of myself a little bit in my message, but works is the manifestation of faith. We can claim that we believe something, but if it does not move the way that we act and move our our hands and our feet, then it's of no value. It's of no direct importance. It's not to say it's not there. It just doesn't touch the world. It doesn't do anything. I used to hear people give an analogy for faith, and and there was always something that sat wrong with me about it. Now, if you use this analogy when you witness to people, that's fine. I I, I think there's plenty of people got saved and, and understood what faith is by listening to this illustration, this analogy. But I always found it wholly un un you know uh, un unfulfilled or un incomplete. I guess would be the way to say it. I heard people say, "Well, faith is like if you looked at a chair and said, I believe that that chair can hold me up." But it's not faith until you sit down in it. Have you ever heard somebody say that? There's a problem with that. It sort of implies that if you don't sit in it, it's really because what you were saying you didn't really believe in the first place. In other words, it draws no distinction between academic affirmation, sincere academic affirmation, and expression of that faith. And I've always preferred to give this illustration that uh, faith to me is sort of like a person that that plans a trip. And uh, you can do a lot of things in planning to go on a trip. You can buy clothes for your trip. You can buy tickets for your trip. Uh, you can buy all the supplies that you need for your trip. You can ask off for work for the trip. You can even go down to the airport and you can stare at the plane. But none of that is going to get you to your location. You've got to get on the plane, put your life in the care of the pilot... And trust Him to take you where you cannot get to by yourself. Now, of course, that has very strong connections to salvation and what a person does when they lean upon the Lord. But it also does something else. It recognizes that a person can really believe a lot of things. But if they do not act upon that belief, then they have done nothing that is productive. Nothing that is effectual. Nothing that moves the world. And I think we have a lot of of theoretical Christianity today. And it may be sincere. They may really believe it. It's like some of y'all when you went into the military and they made your dog tags out and they asked you, what are you? Are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you whatever it is? And there's people that sincerely meant it when they said, I am Protestant or whatever, I'm Baptist or whatever they put on the dog tag. But it didn't change the way that they lived and behaved. I'm saying that what we're doing in this place... If it is not, if the the serving that we're doing, the works that we're doing, the the laboring that we're doing, if we're not doing it as a manifestation of our belief in the truth of God's Word and our belief in the character and personage of God, then we're not doing what God expects of us. We are to be a testimony to the reality and power of faith. Faith that is placed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If what we're doing, we're doing merely as a matter of duty or responsibility, then we're not doing what we ought to do. Works is the manifestation of faith. Faith is the motivation of works. I'm not going to belabor this because I already sort of preached around it, but Paul says in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it's impossible to please Him. And then he, he makes a very interesting statement. For he that cometh to God must believe. Let's just pause there. He that cometh to God must believe. You're not going to come to God if you don't believe in God. But he doesn't stop there, must believe that He is. And that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The only proper motivation for serving the Lord is faith. Belief in God, belief in his promises, belief in the character is exhibited in the word of God. But then I would say this, that works is the meat of faith. 
listen to what Christ said in John chapter number 4. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Uh, just a few verses I want to read to you. And you've heard me talk about this. It pops up in sermons that I preach quite often. But as Christ has been witnessing to the woman at the well, um, the disciples were had grown concerned about the Lord because he hadn't eaten in a while. And so when the woman goes and, and goes back to tell the other Samaritans what the Lord has done for her, the disciples come up and, and they begin to talk to him. And in verse 31 it says, In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Let me read that again. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. They were asking a very simple question. How are you going to be sustained? That's what food's for, right? To sustain you. We've sort of lost that now because now we just, we eat until we can't eat anymore and we've got to roll ourselves out into the middle of the aisle at the restaurant and drag ourselves to the car. But, but, but food in its proper context is fuel, right? And it's meant to sustain us. And they were asking, aren't you growing weary? You're serving. You're working. Aren't you growing weary? And he said, I'm not growing weary. And they said, well, how? What fuel is sustaining you? He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I have a fuel you don't know anything about. They said, well, what fuel do you have? What are you eating? What is sustaining you? He said, my meat, my fuel, my sustenance is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In other words, when works are an expression of biblical faith, then they in and of themselves become a sustaining element or a satisfying element in a person's life. In other words, if our faith is right, then faithfulness will sustain us rather than fruitfulness. Faithfulness will sustain us rather than fruitfulness. It's something I think a lot of people miss today. They only want to serve God if if things work out the way they hope. They only want to serve God if they can do it the way they want to do it. They only want to serve God if people applaud them or appreciate them or a thousand other things. I was listening to a preacher the other day or I was talking to him and he was talking about somebody that left his church and and he said something that fascinated me. He said, apparently we broke one of their secret rules. Uh, Talking about this person that left their church. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you know, some people just have a bunch of secret rules and you don't know what they are and if you break one of them, they go... (laughs) And there's some truth to that. You know, a a thousand things it could be. But Christ said, the thing that sustains me is not fruitfulness. In other words, whether this woman believes on me or not, whether I see any fruit from this or not, whether I gain any benefit out of it or not, doing the work is enough. Because doing the work is a manifestation of my belief in my Father. My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. In other words, it's enough to me that he be pleased. It's enough to me that I'm doing his work. I think, man, this would do so much to cure spiritual fatigue in the life of believers if they could recognize that it's not their job or responsibility to rescue the world. It's their job to please the Father. Now, part of that is trying to rescue the perishing, and I'm not dismissing that. Christ was trying to rescue the perishing here. But he said, what sustains me, what is my meat, is that this is a work of faith. 
The work of faith ought to be enough to sustain us. Faithfulness and, and, and the, the apprehension and realization of it in our lives. You know, nobody can stop you from being faithful. If you can grow contented with faithfulness, that as long as I'm pleasing the Lord, I'm pleased, then you've reached a place in life where the devil cannot spiritually fatigue you. Because the thing that sustains you is merely and only that the Lord be pleased. Let me give you a second thing. He says, I remember your work of faith. I remember that what went on at Thessalonica always was birthed out of faith. It was an expression of faith. It was the, the success of it was measured and metered by faith. And what mattered was that you were growing in your faith, that you were developing in your, I thought I was done preaching this point, but I got a few more things to say about it. If we're not growing in our faith, if we're not taking new steps for God, then we've missed it. We're not doing what the Lord allows. This is what guards us against a rut. My pastor used to say growing up that a rut is nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. What keeps us from the rut is ever striving to be personally growing in the Lord. Not necessarily to be seeing more fruit from it, but to be taking greater steps of faith. Are you, are you growing in your faith? It ought to be a work of faith. Everything we do ought to be birthed out of faith. Everything that we do ought to be done with the end, with the desire, with the goal to be the development of our faith, for us to grow more dependent upon God, for us to take bigger steps for God, for us to trust God with bigger things. Faith should be at the centerpiece, the heartbeat of it. Now I think I'm done. I don't know. Their work of faith. Number two, he said, you know what I remember? I remember your labor of love. And when we talk about a labor of love, it's very, it's very interesting, the distinction here. A work or a labor. When we think of a work, we think of a venture, right? A venture. A great work has been done, or we endeavor on this great work. But when we think of a labor, we think of the actual exerting of effort in it. And I don't think that's an accident. I think your King James Bible is exactly how it ought to be. I think that word is used for a very important reason. Because as we are serving the Lord, there's going to be times it's going to be easy. There's going to be times it's going to be hard. I, you know, I, I've, I've done this thing long enough to recognize that, that serving the Lord is cyclical and seasonal in nature. You go through up seasons, you go through down seasons, you go through seasons where it's easy, you go through seasons where it's tough. And during those seasons when it's not easy, something has to motivate us. Something has to drive us. I would say that as he observed their church, he said, you know, I see the love of God in everything that takes place. These are not just people bound together by common interests. These are not people, and by the way, that's what, that's how it initially starts. You and I are in this room tonight because we both know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you've often heard me say that very few of us would probably find our way to each other in life were it not for that. But here we are tonight, this motley crew of people, <laughs> this riffraff, because we know the Lord. But then that common interest cannot be the only thing, the only bond that we have, or in its infancy in the rudimentary element of it, just the fact that we know the Lord, should not be the stopping point of our bondedness, our connectedness to each other. That should birth a real, meaningful love that we have one for another. And Paul, as he looked at the church at Thessalonica, he said, man, one of the things I remember is the way y'all loved each other. And the way that you did what you did because of your love for each other and your love for the Lord. I would say this tonight, that love must instigate our labor. 
Listen to what John said in 1 John chapter number 4, if I can find my way over to it. 1 John chapter number 4. Now, you're familiar with these passages of Scripture, I know, but I want you to notice a particular phrase that John uses. In verse number 7, I'm going to read a few verses here, so be patient with me. Verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Let me pause there and say this, that the term love being used here is biblically defined love. Uh, Love, as defined by the world, is not something that's of God. But love that's biblically defined, meaning it, it, it is yielded to and subservient to biblical truth, that's the kind of love that John's talking about. It says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Now here's how we know what this kind of love is. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't have time to unpack that, but suffice it to say that that's the type of love that's being used in this context here. It's not just talking about love between man and wife. It's not just talking about love between uh, comrades, but it's talking about the kind of love that God manifested in sending His Son to die for us. A love that is born out of spiritual truth, born out of the hope of faith, a love that is born out of out of divine perspective and out of appreciation for and confidence in and, and respect for the holiness of God. That's the kind of love He's talking about. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Notice how he says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If God loved us in that way, we ought to love others in the way that God loved us. No man has seen God at any time. Now, is that a detriment to our love of God? No, evidently not. He says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. So we understand this, that love is not necessarily something subjected to physical sensation or or tangibility. It's something that is transcendental to those things. He says, verse 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. We have known and believed that the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein, I want you to notice this, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So, uh, we might say this, that faith can produce a number of things in a person's life. For instance, if we believe that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as the Hebrews writer said, and that motivates us to serve God in faith, but in a fearful faith, then we're serving Him in faith, but we're still not serving Him in the way that God desires. The way that we ought to serve Him, our labor should be instigated by our love for Him and our love for others because of their position in Him, because of His love for them. Because God loves them, we ought to love them, and the way that God loves them, we ought to love them. And what he's saying is that love, because that love can only be birthed out of faith, Only by believing that what God said is true 
can we have that kind of love in our heart? That's the reason he goes through what we might say is, is sort of a doctrinal, uh, you know, uh, a declaration, almost like a doctrinal uh, creed. A, there's a word that I'm looking for, but it's escaping me. Uh, but, but this doctrinal statement about knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Him by responding in faith to the message of the gospel and the truth of the Word of God, produces love in us because we can't love God except we first recognize that He loved us. The story of the gospel is a love story that God loved us. And so that faith produces, breeds, uh, engenders a love, a divine love towards God and towards those that God loves, which incidentally is everybody, but especially those that know the Lord. They experience and have leaned upon, have tasted of the love of God. And John says that that love ought to be the characterizing factor of our faith. So our work is a work of faith. But it can only be a proper work of faith if our labor is a labor of love. Love should instigate our labor. Number two, love must inform our labor. I don't have time. (laughs) I did have time. I've just used it all preaching. But listen to what it says in Luke chapter number six. And again, you, you can jot this down if you want. You can turn there if you can get there in time. But Luke chapter number six, look down at verse number 31. The Lord Jesus says, as you... Would that men should do to you, so do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. If ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. If ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. It says, But love ye your enemies, do good and lend, hope for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. There's a lot of things we could say about that, but the overall tenor is this, that reciprocal love must not be the standard for God's children. In other words, if we're only good to those that are good to us, we're not really doing it out of selfless love. We're doing it out of self-interest. You probably heard me say this, and I said something about it in Sunday school the other day. A lost person does not really have the ability... To be righteous. It's not just they won't do it, they can't do it. Because at the end of the day, they can only be self-serving in their actions. Let me give you a few examples. A lost man may love his wife, but he doesn't do it because God commands him to do it, and he's doing it out of obedience to the Lord and to His Word. He does it because his wife pleases him. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, the divorce rate's like above 50%. That's how I know that. Because oftentimes when that social contract begins to dissolve, then the marriage cannot hold together anymore. And I'm not saying, you you know, I'm not saying divorced people are lost or anything like that. But what I'm saying is this, that the world's concept of love and morality, the world's concept of that contract is reciprocal in nature. Same thing can be said about a lost man and his family. A lost man can be good to his family. A lot of people were raised by good fathers, good mothers that did not know the Lord, but they were moral people. But they did not do what they did because it was commanded of God and they loved the Lord and they believed God would honor and reward them for doing that. They did that because their family pleased them. Same thing can be said about charity. A lot of people say, well, you know, people in Hollywood, they give to charity. That's true. I believe, in fact, their giving to charity is a lot of the reason they're as wealthy as they are. Because there are a lot of just truisms of life that are expressed in Scripture that Solomon observed. And I think a lot of those things hold true even to lost people. But a lost person cannot truly give in righteousness. They give to charity. Why do they do that? Because it gives them a sense of self-fulfillment. Only a saved person can do it out of obedience to the Lord. 
You see, a lost person at best can be moral for reciprocal motives because they believe that good will be done unto them by karma, by whatever it is, or merely the good that is experienced and enjoyed by them in the act itself. Only a Bible believer can be spiritual. Only a Christian can be spiritual because only they can do it out of the right motive, doing it as unto the Lord. And Christ is saying here that if our standard for how we love people, how we treat people, is reciprocal in nature, we're only going to be good to those that are good to us, we're only going to love those that love us, we're only going to help those that help us, then He says our righteousness is really no better than what the sinners have. Our, our serving is no better than what the sinners have. He says what must motivate us is our love. Our love for them. The same kind of love that God showed to them. And that's what he says in verse number 35. For he, talking about the Lord, the highest. He says, you shall be children of the highest. For he, the highest, is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. In other words, the Lord does it, not because he's going to get anything out of it, but as an expression of his love and of his person, of his character. So love must inform our labor. And then love will insulate, must insulate our labor. I want to read you one verse out of First Peter chapter number 4. I don't know what time it is. But you ain't got nowhere to be. No, I'm joking. <laughs> First Peter chapter number four. I want to read one verse to you, and then I'm going to give you a couple thoughts and close. First Peter chapter number four, if I can find my way over to it. Uh, verse number eight. Peter says something very fascinating about the topic of service and the topic of love. First Peter chapter number four. If I can get my pages in my Bible. If you don't read these Bibles, they don't, pages don't open for you. First Peter chapter number four, verse number eight. Peter says, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Then he says this, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Godly, righteous love can insulate our labor in the Lord. In other words, the best way to guard against the devil getting in a church is for church people to love one another. People put up with a lot of things when they love somebody. See it all the time. You see it with people with their kids. You see it with spouses. You see it with family members. It's astonishing the things that love will make us tolerate and put up with. And I feel like part of the reason churches are so fragile today is because we do not have the love one towards another that we should have. Listen, if you're part of a New Testament church, there's going to be times people are going to step on your feelings. Now, it don't help if you got them sticking way out in the center aisle. But... Even at, in the best of circumstances. You wouldn't believe the things people have said to me and not thought a thing about it. <laughs> just not meaning to be mean or meaning to be unkind, but just sort of incidentally or not thinking. I'm sure I've done the same thing to people. The fact is, there, there is a danger. People are going to hurt your feelings. People are going to do things to upset you. Preacher, how can we guard against that? Love them. Love them. Your love can look over their insensitivity, their their untactfulness, their silliness, their foolishness, their selfishness. If you love them, think about what you put up with in your kids or your grandkids or your spouse and what they put up with in you. Love can cover a multitude of sins. One final thing tonight. He remembered their work of faith. He remembered their labor of love. He remembered a third thing about them. He said, I remember your patience of hope. This is an interesting phrase, the intermarrying of these two ideas, patience and hope. Because the interconnectedness of these two words is probably stronger than the prior two states. In other words, patience and hope are probably more deeply connected than even works and faith are. And that's an astonishing thought. 
that we must, if we are to have hope, we must have patience. And that if we are going to have patience, it's going to require hope. I want to read two passages to you and then we'll close. Romans chapter number 8. Paul says something. We actually read this the other day. I believe last Wednesday night in the message. But listen to what he says in Romans chapter number 8. He's talking about uh, how God has created us and the sufferings of this present time and how we as God's creation are yearning for the coming, uh, the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, the rapture and when God's going to uh, recreate this world afresh and anew. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Let me put that in hillbilly commentary. Is that all right? We're made broken. One of these days, God's going to make us whole. God meant to make us broken. He didn't create us in a sin-fallen condition, but He did create us knowing that we would sin and, and knowing that Adam and Eve would eat of the fruit. And He did so with the intention of remaking in us a greater creation than what we were in the first place. And so God knew that was going to happen. He intended uh, and allowed and permitted that to happen. He says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That's what's happening when you wake up in the morning, by the way, as you're groaning and travailing in pain together until now. He says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Now listen to what he says. For we are saved by hope. We are saved by hope. Now when he says saved by hope here, he's not talking about saved in the sense of personal soul salvation. When we think of a person who says, well, I got saved. That's not what he's talking about here. The term saved is used in a lot of ways in your Bible. And what he's talking about when he says saved is he's talking about our, our, our mental well-being, our, our spiritual well-being. He's talking about uh, the our Christian character, if we could say it that way. Our Christian character is safeguarded and preserved through hope. Uh, there's a lot of things that losing hope can can destroy in you. And he says that we are saved, our character, our witness, our testimony, all those things are safeguarded against the influence of the world and against the onslaught of our persecution, our afflictions, our sufferings that he just mentioned. He said we are saved by hope. Hope keeps us from giving up. Then he says, but hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, we recognize the value of hope. But then when, when we're called upon to hope, we get upset because we don't want to hope. We want things to be immediately changed. You see this all the time. People talk about walking by faith and then are shocked when God asks them to do it. He says, but what hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? He says, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Hope produces patience. We can wait if we know that there's a better day coming. We can hope, we can, we, we can wait if we know that there is a better day coming. You know, the wickedness of the world around me, I can't tell you how many people that have asked me, preacher, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We look at the wickedness of the world, particularly everything that just happened with this abortion thing, and everybody's shocked and appalled. And I guess we should be shocked and appalled, although really, if you want my opinion, we shouldn't have grown comfortable with state-instituted murder for the past 40 or 50 years. We should have been being outraged since the 70s. 
and God's people grew all too comfortable with the murder of unborn children. And then now the ugliness of it is sort of shoved to the forefront and we feel obligated to gasp and be appalled by it. But the fact is they were murdering babies before two weeks ago. And they were babies that were being murdered before two weeks ago. So I'm not saying it's not a big cultural moment, but I'm just saying it's hard to be outraged when we should have been being outraged the whole time. But people are saying, what are we going to do, preacher? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm trying to remind people of this. I'm not saying don't be a good Christian, don't be a good patriot. Listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, if you want to write letters to your officials, by all means go and vote. You have a civic duty and responsibility to do so. But the best word of hope that I've got for you right now is that this world is going to get worse and worse. But Jesus is coming soon. That doesn't mean we abandon our responsibility to be light and salt. I'm not implying that, but, I, but I'm saying we have to recognize now more than ever that we're pilgrims and strangers in this world. And what this ought to do is remind us as we see groaning and travailing in creation, it ought to remind us that we have hope of a better day. Hope produces patience. It produces in us the ability to wait because we believe that God is going to right every wrong. And then turn back to Romans chapter 5. And listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, that one day God's going to glorify us, and one day God's going to receive glory unto Himself through glorifying us, through giving us a glorified body, I guess the way we should say it. He doesn't glorify us. He glorifies Himself, but because we're in Christ, we share in that glory. Uh, one of these days, God's going to glorify Himself. Not only so, Paul says, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Uh, hope produces patience, but patience predicates hope. <laughs> now, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher. The chicken can't come before the egg and the egg come before the chicken. So which is it? Which do we pursue first? Well, the hope is produced in our hearts through the truth of the Word of God. We respond in faith to what God says to be true. And that produces in us a hope. That hope produces a patience. And that patience feeds and, and produces and encourages and nurtures and nourishes hope. That patience gives us reason and gives us patience. Uh, uh, How can I say it right? Hope needs patience to grow. It needs patience to grow. If you're not willing to wait on God to bring about what He said that He would bring about, then there's no room for hope to live in your heart. You have to have enough patience to wait on God and let God produce what He wants to produce. On the converse side, If you don't have any hope in God, you're not going to be willing to wait and to be patient. The thing that should characterize us as a church, speaking about this point in particular, should be that we've got our eyes ever on the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we're not soon shaken with everything that comes about. A lot of Christians, every time something happens on the news, every time something happens in culture, they act like God fell off the throne. When in fact, everything's happening exactly the way God said it was going to happen. The Bible didn't say that evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse except for the handful of years that your preferred political candidate is in office. 
didn't say that everything's going evil men and seducers going to wax worse and worse except in America. We shouldn't be surprised by anything we see around us. And I'm not saying we disconnect ourselves and, and become unfeeling. I'm just saying the thing that should characterize us should be hope. Hope of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And patience in light of that, knowing that God is operating on His perfect timing in all ways.